before we look at God's word, uh, I pray that nobody joins Cain in the land of Nod tonight. Um, Father God, thank you that your word is true, just like we've been singing about. It is more precious than gold and it's sweeter than honey. Lord, anything that I say tonight, if it is not in accordance with what your word's saying, I pray that these people would forget it. Father, may your word be made true tonight. May it be uh, expounded faithfully, Lord, and may we see Jesus. That's what it's all pointing to. So, Father, help us tonight as we study this. Help us to be aware of our sin, what we are like as human beings, but to be aware of your grace, which is far more powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, Genesis chapter 4. Um, the first four chapters of Genesis, I think, are absolutely foundational chapters to understanding the gospel, to understanding the good news of Jesus as a whole. I think they're foundational, not only to the gospel, but to absolutely everything. That's why at the start of the book, understanding these four chapters will help us to understand humanity. It will help us to understand the world we live in. It will help us to understand what's wrong with the world. It helps us understand who God is. Big questions that philosophers wrestle with with centuries, over centuries. I think the answers are found at the start of Genesis. It's an incredibly important book. Tonight's section that I've focused in on, on Genesis chapter 4, people have often described this as the first murder story. But that's not what Genesis 4 is just about. That does happen, but that's far too narrow reading of the text. Genesis 4 is here to show us what the world is like now because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Genesis 4 is a case study on what humanity is like because of sin. In uh, Genesis 1 and 2, it shows us how God created the world. Genesis 3 shows us how Adam and Eve distorted the world. And Genesis 4 shows us what this world is like now. It's a world no longer in paradise. It's a world no longer in innocent perfection. Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3 that Dave was reading about, brought something into the world that wasn't there before. Something that wasn't there when God created it. Something that twisted and distorted all of humanity ever since sin. You see, sin is a, it's one of these words we often think of as like, you know, just doing something a bit naughty. But in the Bible, sin is just the absolute embodiment of everything that is wrong with mankind. So when Adam and Eve rebelled, out of that flowed destruction, disease, death, famine, evil, greed, selfishness, lust, murder, all of that, all the great evils that we have seen on the news and history throughout time, all flew flowed out of that act of rebellion in Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 4, immediately afterwards, this is what the world is like now. This is the world we live in now. We live in the world of Cain and Abel. It's the world east of Eden. That's what I've called tonight's talk, the world east of Eden. Genesis 4 teaches us about sin. It teaches us about sin and God's response to it. So there's three things I want to look at tonight. First of all, I want to look at the self-centered nature of sin. Secondly, I want to look at the subtle danger of sin. And finally, I want to look at the only solution to sin. 
the self-centered nature of sin, the subtle danger of sin, and the only solution to sin. So let's look at the self-centered nature of sin first of all. Um, I wonder if, like me, when, when you first read this passage, it's kind of confusing as to what exactly Cain does that's wrong. I mean, I think we get the murder bit. I think we all, we all agree that's pretty bad. But at the start, it's like, why does God show favor to Abel and not to Cain? I mean, we've got two brothers here, both hardworking brothers, both worshiping the true God, and both come to God with an offering. Yet God looks with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. An important thing, I think, to remember that's helped me understand this is to remember the original audience of Genesis. Whenever we look at the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, we've got to remember that this is written not to 21st century Scottish people, but it's written to a tribe of, ancient tribe of nomadic Jews wandering about the desert. So Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and he wrote it to the nation of Israel after they had been freed from slavery out of Egypt, and they were wandering in the desert. So these guys wandering in the desert already would have had the book that we call Leviticus. They would have already had the law. They would have known all about sacrifices and offerings and what was acceptable to bring to God. And the thing is, with both these offerings, the fruit and the lambs, both are acceptable offerings in bringing it to God. And I think, to understand what is wrong with Cain's offering, we've got to look at the details here. Verse 3, Cain brings some of the fruits he's been working on and Abel brings the fat portions from the firstborn. I reckon as one of the first readers of that text we would have got immediately what Abel had done. It was different to what Cain had done. Abel brought the absolute best, the fat portions from the firstborn. He brought the best of what he had and he gave it to God as an offering. Cain doesn't. He just brings some of the fruits. Both are acceptable, but the reason God looks with favor on Abel's offering over Cain's is ultimately it's down to their hearts. It's not about what they offered, but it's about how they approach God. In a sense, you know, what, what they offer is irrelevant. In Psalm 51, David says uh, that God does not delight in burnt offerings, or surely he would bring them, but God delights in a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the offering that God wants. Humility. Abel has it. Cain doesn't. Abel wants to give his best for God. He wants God. Cain doesn't. Cain is essentially the patron saint of religion. He is the first Pharisee. It's simply ritualistic. He wants to approach God on his own terms. And as the narrative progresses, that becomes more and more evident because Cain when he finds out that Abel, Abel, Abel gets the favor, he's fuming, he's raging. Cain gets angry, he gets depressed, and he gets jealous. Why? Because he should be getting the favor. When Cain approaches, it's all about him. It's not about God. It's like the Pharisees, they just wanted to be seen. They, they, did, they went through the rituals, but it was so they could get the favor from other people, so people could see how holy and pious they were. That's what Cain's like. And then God doesn't give him that favor and he's fuming. Look at his anger in verse 5. Who is Cain angry at here? 
Cain's angry at God. He's probably thinking, how dare he show Abel the favor after what I've done? How dare he? I'm the firstborn. I should be getting the favor. A sinful heart is not concerned with God, but rather with himself and how he appears. Even after he kills his brother and God rightfully punishes him, what does he say in verse 13 and 14? Actually, what doesn't he say? There's no apology. There's no humble repentance. There's no, oh my goodness, what have I done? All he's concerned about now is how he's going to live. The very thing that he did to Abel, he's worried is going to happen to him. Because it's all about Cain. It's self-centeredness and it's pride. And it is, in essence, the absolute core of what sin is. It's the sin of his parents, Adam and Eve. The sin that they committed was wanting to take God off the throne and put themselves on it. They wanted to be like God. It wasn't the fruit that they, eat, that they ate, it was their hearts. That's why Martin Luther, I love his definition of sin, he says that sin is man curved in on himself. Sin is not just about doing bad things. You can do good things and still be sinful. I mean, Cain's moral standing pre the murder incident probably wasn't that bad. Uh, he's a religious man. He definitely believes in God. I mean, he speaks to him. Goes to church, or the equivalent back then. But in his heart, he's only really concerned with himself. He's curved in on himself. It's the core of what's wrong with him. It's the core of what's wrong with humanity. It's self-centeredness and it's pride. And some of the best things that I have, uh, one of the most helpful things I've read outside of the Bible on this particular topic is in uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He's got a chapter on pride. It's very helpful. This is what Lewis says. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their head about girls, or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I've very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more conscious of in ourselves. And the more we have of it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. It's pride. It's the heart of what's wrong with Cain. And think about that. We hardly notice it in ourselves. Lewis is right. Selfishness is one of these things that we think is acceptable uh, for us to have. But as soon as we see selfishness or arrogance in someone else, we hate it. Pride is there. It's in all of us. And it's destructive. I mean, why do we do things that we know are wrong? Is it because we want to gratify selfish desires? Is it because at that moment... What God says is not as important as what I want. Why do we do good things? The good things that we do. Do we do it like Cain? Do we do it because we want the favour? Do we do it so that we can look good? Do we serve the church so that people will notice us? Or do we expect the church to serve us? 
Do you get annoyed when people don't see what you've done? Look at all the work I've put into this. And don't get me wrong, people can do this in a genuine God-honoring way. Abel does. He wants God. It's so subtle, and I see it everywhere. I mean, do you ever tell little lies to people? I've noticed myself sometimes, I just tell a lie, and it's like really random. Why did I say that? Why did I lie about that? And ultimately, at the root of it, it's probably because I wanted to make what story it was I was telling a little bit funnier. I wanted to make myself look a bit better. It's pride. It was about me looking good. Tim Keller, uh, I think it's in Counterfeit Gods, talks about this. He says, if you desperately need every day to have everyone say that you're okay, doesn't that mean that you're not? We want the favour. And how many of us here, when we hear about pride as well, we often think of someone we know and we think, oh, I wish that person was here to hear this. They're a really proud person. That's a thought of pride. We make ourselves feel good by comparing ourselves to other people that we think are inferior. Cain definitely thinks he's superior to Abel. That's why he should get the the favour. And I think especially dangerous this sin is, is when you're up the front, like me just now, or when you're leading. It's hard to be up here and not to think, oh, I want to sound good. I want to show my theological knowledge. To, I want to be funny, but not too funny. you know. And it's constantly there. And I'm thinking, how am I looking? How am I appearing? And it's, it's just so dangerous. Because then it becomes about me and how I am and not about making Christ exalted. Friends, we've got to question our motivations. And I'm not accusing because I can't because the problem's in me. And do you know what's interesting about Genesis 4? God doesn't accuse Cain, but he questions him. He questions. Is this not often the, the technique of Jesus as well? He answers a question with a question. And when God asks you a question, it's not because he's lacking information. It's because he's trying to show you something. You see, pride, self-centeredness is an absolute hammer blow to God and his character. Pride says that he is not the center of the universe, but you are. Pride says that this awesome creator God that is in Genesis 1 and 2 exists to serve you that's what it says and I think this is the mentality of the world east of Eden it's all about you, get yourself some alone time, the advertisements and the philosophies that we are fed are all individualistic you're special, you're a snowflake I was watching an interview with Lady Gaga because I was doing a talk for uh, some of the kids in a school in Edinburgh Lady Gaga sitting there uh, and she says this How's this for a worldview? If we could just learn to love ourselves more, the world would be a better place. That's not true, that's a lie. In fact, that's the very essence of what's wrong with the world. If we could just learn to love ourselves more, the world would be a better place. I think Hitler loved himself quite a lot. So did Stalin, so did all these great dictators. Pride is at the root of sin. That's why Jesus, when he says, summing up the law, when he talks about what it is to be perfect, 
is two commands that are completely the opposite to pride. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is wicked, it is hurtful and it is blasphemous. And because, because God doesn't feed Cain's pride, it causes him to feel angry and it causes him to feel depressed. But he approaches him with the questions like I was saying. God comes like a counsellor to Cain. He pursues Cain. He's wanting Cain to know the danger that he's in. Why are you angry, Cain? That is the question that gets right to the heart of Cain's problem. Why are you angry? Why are you angry at God? Because God didn't act in the way that you thought he should act? Because you thought God should do this, this is what would be the best way to do it, and God didn't do that? That's pride. Why are you angry? Then we see, secondly, in this passage, the subtle danger of sin, because God, with this question, comes in with a warning describing sin. We see it in verse uh, 6 of the passage. If you look there, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desires to have you. But you must master it. Do you know this is the first time that sin is ever mentioned in the Bible? Look at the description of it. Shows how subtly dangerous it is. It's like a wild animal lurking, waiting to pounce, waiting to devour you. Cain, you've got to stop. That anger, because your pride has been wounded, is going to grow into something terrible. Stop it. God's warning. I think it's also interesting to notice that sin is not just like an, an abstract thing. It's not a lump of matter or something that, you know, uh, like that. It's, it's personified. It's like a beast. And I think what we're seeing in this warning is that that serpent that caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin is not absent east of Eden. He's still there. It's not a snake. Satan is lurking about in the background of Genesis 4. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Strikingly similar to God's description of sin here. Satan is there, laying out lies, laying out temptations, waiting to devour. Friends, what is it that lies at the door? What is it that lies waiting to devour us? Ravi Zacharias has got a great example of this. He tells the story of a um, doctor friend who knew, who uh, one night when he was working went out to the front of the hospital. There was a patient who had been dropped off. She was a drug user. Her friends had dropped her off and driven away and left her lying there. Uh, She was there and apparently the doctor could see all the marks on her arms. Um, And apparently there was something wrong with her heart. And he had to do a procedure in which he had to go in basically and start the heart with his hand. I don't know how that works. Um, But when he was taking his hand out, he cut his uh, hand, went through his glove, and just a wee tiny cut on his hand. I think he cut it off a ribcage. And he phoned Ravi and he says, Mr. Zacharias, I'd like you to pray for me. And he explained the incident and he says, I think the girl had AIDS. All it took was just that little paper cut for that disease to filter in and bring about death. That's what sin is like. A little sin won't do any harm. 
And then it goes and it snowballs and it leads to something terrible. That's what we've seen happening in Genesis 4. Cain's sin of pride leads to murder. His anger leads to murder. Jesus warns of that. God is saying, God is saying, you must master it. Stop it now. If pride is given free reign in your heart, if the sins there are allowed to fester and envelop you, then the consequences will be disastrous. Verse 8 and 9 comes to the climax of the passage. Cain's anger against God turns to jealousy against his brother, which leads to hatred, which leads to murder. It's interesting that the fractured relationship on the vertical level has led to a distorted relationship on the horizontal level with his brother. The absolute opposite to that, of course, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. When pride is at the root of what's wrong with us as human beings, and when it becomes so subtle that we don't even know it, that it's distorting us, that it's opening the door for various other sins, it leads to horrendous acts. This is what happened. This is the outcome. This is what happened when, this is what happens when man wants to put himself in the place of God. This is what's wrong with the world. Cain knows exactly what he's doing. He takes him out and he kills him. Cain removes that obstacle uh, to what he wants in his life. His brother was getting the favour, not him, so he kills him. His pride, his anger and his jealousy are the root of his spiteful act. When we are angry with God, when we drift from him, it affects our relationships with others around about us. It really does. Sin grows and it can cause absolute devastation. And some of you may be here, I don't know everyone here, like I say, there's a lot of new faces. Some of you may be here and you may not be Christians. You may be thinking, well, hold on. I don't have that relationship, as it were, that you're talking about and I've not killed anyone. The devastation that sin brings about, seen in many ways, and apathy is one of them. Not caring, not coming to God. I mean, Satan's quite happy for people to be apathetic and not care about the gospel. doesn't mean they have to go murdering people. The big problem here is what this section says about sin is prevalent to us all because we're all sinners. And I'm sure we've seen some, as hard as it is to, to know that this man Cain and this murderer, there's some similarities between ourselves and Cain. It seems that the root problem of Cain is the root problem of me and I reckon of you guys as well. And if any of us here think we're not sinful, then one John tells us that we're deceiving ourselves. That sin that was at the door has already devoured us. This is the world east of Eden. And it seems that Satan's plan in Genesis 3 that Dave read to us, it seems that it's going just the way he wants it to, succeeding. But there is a solution. And we see that the solution cannot possibly come for us because we are the problem. The solution has to come from God. God's character, this is the third point, the solution to sin. God's character throughout this passage is one of grace. He approaches Cain with patience, with mercy, with questionings, and with warnings. Yet Cain continues to ignore and continues to rebel. Just like he's probably approaching some of you here tonight with these questions and warnings. And God does not let Cain off with sin. In verse 10 and 12, he curses Cain and the ground he works on and banishes him. Uh, a reflection of the, the curse on Cain's father that Dave was reading to us in Genesis 3. 
And Cain's pleas for mercy in verse 14 are met by God replying to him and saying, no one's going to kill you, Cain, because I'm going to put a mark on you to stop you being killed. And apparently the word for mark is the same word for sign in Hebrew. Uh, I've not been learning ancient Hebrew at St. Catherine's. I got that from a commentary. Um, But it's the same word for sign. It's the same word that God uses uh, when he's talking to Noah and Abraham when he makes a covenant with them. He's talking about the sign. In essence, this is like a covenant that God is making with Cain. That is unbelievable. After all Cain has done, after he sinned against God, against his family, God makes a covenant. You see, God is patient. God is filled with grace that has always been his character. He waits for people to repent and he gives constant opportunities. He shows love and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And anyone here as a Christian is a testimony to that. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis says this, God's concern for the innocent is matched only by his care for the sinner. God's mark on Cain is almost a covenant with him, making him virtually his protector is the utmost mercy he can do for the unrepentant. See, Cain doesn't care about God. God still shows him grace. It's his character. He is in his nature love. And we've seen that in Genesis already because when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, when Dave was reading that to us, there was punishment, but there was also hope. As there always is in the Bible. There's consequences, but God always offers a way out. And he offers hope in Genesis 3, 15. Very famous verse. He tells Eve that a child will come who will destroy Satan, one who will crush the serpent's head. And I wonder actually if that explains almost the sense of optimism you see in Genesis 4.1. Eve's quite chuffed that she's given birth to Cain. I wonder if she thinks, hey, this this is it. The serpent crusher. If she did, she was way off. In fact, all of Genesis really is looking for this child. When you study Genesis, you see that that's the pattern. They're looking for this one who's going to come, who's going to crush Satan's head, who's going to defeat sin and death. In fact, in chapters 5 of Genesis, uh, afterwards, you've just got this big, long list of names, and it's met with a repeated refrain, he died, he died, he died. None of these men were the serpent crusher. He was not to be found. Genesis ends... Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. It's kind of a bit anticlimactic seeing how it began with God speaking the universe. That's how it ends. The serpent crusher was not found. In fact, it would be many thousands of years after Joseph that he would come. And he would come to offer the solution to our biggest problem. To the problem that entered the world at Genesis 3 and is present with us now, sin. And the solution to sin is found in his blood Jesus Christ is the true Abel. He is the only one who's actually totally innocent. He's the totally innocent one who died, who came to defeat sin and death. Genesis 4 verse 10. Really interesting verse. God says this to Cain. The voice of Abel's blood cries out from the ground. The voice of Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Abel's blood is crying out. For justice. It's the voice of innocence crying out for vengeance. Every time we sin, every time we do something wrong, we think something wrong, we say something wrong, 
is crying out for justice, for punishment. When Jesus Christ, the one who was going to defeat Satan, died, when he was killed, he offered that solution to our problem, to our sin, to our pride, and to our rebellion against God. He offered the solution to God's anger against our sin. See, because on the cross, Jesus takes on the form of sin. Our sin crying out for justice. He takes the punishment for it. He becomes all that is wrong with humanity and is punished on our behalf. Jesus becomes the sacrifice. He takes the full ferocity of God's wrath for every wrong thing that you have ever done in your life. He takes the punishment for it, for the sin, for the pride. He becomes on the cross essentially the proud man. He becomes the embodiment of sin and takes the punishment of it so that God's wrath will never come near us. The cross was the only way that God could destroy sin and evil without destroying us. It's the only way God could be just and the one who justifies. Jesus' sacrifice frees us from our sin, from our bondage to decay and gives us hope, eternal, unfading hope. I was saying um, that dad's in hospital, uh, my dad, and he has got a really bad problem with his lungs. And we're praying for healing, we're praying that he'll get better, but do you know what? The biggest problem he faces is not the deterioration of his lungs or his own mortality, we're all going to die. The biggest problem he faces is his sin. That's been dealt with. See, the the doctors were talking about a 50% chance whether he'll live or die. But there's a 100% chance that he will be forgiven and will not go near God's wrath. And will be welcomed eternally into joy. That is not a fairy story. That is absolute reality of the world that we live in. Christ, his blood, cries out louder than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice, for, for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out to the Father for your forgiveness, for my forgiveness. And we cannot stifle that cry, nor can we add to it. If you're here tonight and you trust in Jesus, you are saved from the greatest problem this world has faced, the greatest problem in your life. The greatest problem you face is not your relationships, it's not bills, it's not money, it's not studies. The greatest problem you face is your sin and God's anger against it. God has dealt with it. These are big problems as well, these other things, but that is the greatest problem. Christ has bought you and saved you from that. His blood cries out for your forgiveness. If you're here tonight and you don't know God, then the wrath of God is still upon you. And like Cain, when the time comes, you will be banished from the presence of God. Not for a while, but for all eternity. God is throwing out these warnings constantly. And Jesus beckons you to flee to him. Listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, I want to close by reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. I want to close by uh, reminding ourselves of what we have been bought into. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. The best commentary on Genesis and on the Old Testament is Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. 
We're going to read from verse 22. It's on page 1211 of the Church Bibles. The author to Hebrews has just been describing how people in the Old Testament used to come to God and used to approach God and what it was like. And now he says, this is what happens to you now because of Jesus. Let's close with these words and then I'll pray. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that that's what we've come to because of Jesus. That we are not perfect, we're imperfect, we're sinful, we're like Cain, we're full of pride. And Father, even though we are like that, your grace and your love is greater than that. And you have taken the punishment, Jesus, for our sins so that we can come to that, to what's been described in your word. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Lord, that is just absolutely astonishing. I pray that we would understand that, Lord, for any of us here who are struggling with sin, if it is crouching at the door, if some feel that they're already being devoured by it, Lord, help us to look to Jesus, to trust in him because he has taken our sin. It is finished, it is done. There's nothing we can do to add to it. There's nothing we can do to take away from it. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus' blood cries out for our forgiveness. In his name, Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.